Welcome to Building Insight, brought to you by the lawyers at Glayholt LLP. Building Insight is Canada's first podcast dedicated to construction law and dispute resolution. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello, and thank you uh, for joining us today. My name is Charles Powell. I'm a partner at Glayholt LLP, and today I'm joined by an associate from Glayholt LLP, uh, Lena Wang, and also by Josh Strub who is Corporate Counsel and Director of Contracts at PNR Railworks. Today we're going to discuss the prompt payment legislation that was implemented by the Construction Act on July 1, 2018. We're going to discuss how the prompt payment regime is intended to work and uh, Josh is going to give us some insight today on uh, how the prompt payment is affecting the contractors and how they're getting ready for it. Um, just to start with, maybe we'll discuss a little bit about what the prompt payment legislation intends to in- implement, what the regime intends to implement. Um, so I guess one of the first things we'll discuss is what prompt payment actually means and how it became part of the law in Ontario. Uh, the prompt payment regime is intended to ensure that contractors are paid promptly upon submittal of a proper invoice. The whole idea is to make sure that money flows as the project continues and that projects aren't held up because money isn't flowing down the construction pyramid. Prompt payment regime was first really developed in the US and in the UK. The Canadian legislation or the Ontario legislation, pardon me, has taken elements from both of these previous prompt payment legislations that came out of those two other jurisdictions. But for Ontario, uh, commencing in October 1, 2019, The prompt payment regime will apply to all public and private sector contracts in Ontario, including those contracts that are P3 type agreements, uh, with the exception being that it does not apply to the maintenance uh, or operation portions of those P3 contracts. The main thrust of the prompt payment legislation is based on proper invoices, and it provides that proper invoices have to be paid within a certain amount of time of submittal. So what is a proper invoice? Well, a proper invoice is defined under the Act as a written bill or other request for services or materials in respect of improvement under a contract. And the Act goes on to provide that uh, what an invoice must contain with respect to information and other requirements that are set out in the Act itself. One of the interesting things about the prompt payment legislation is, and we'll discuss this a little bit more with uh, Josh in, in a few moments, but it applies only to those invo- invoices between a uh, contractor and an owner, so going up the stream. But we'll talk a little bit more about that with Josh in a few minutes. Uh, I mentioned moments ago that a uh, proper invoice has to contain certain information under the Act. This this requires that a proper invoice contain information such as you know, the name and address of the contractor, the date of the invoice, the period in which the services were supplied, uh, who has authority in, under the contract, uh, and, and who the, the services and materials were supplied to, a description of the services, and other items that are listed within the uh, Act itself. So with that information, let's talk about how this prompt payment scheme is supposed to work. So upon receipt of a proper invoice, an owner has 28 days to pay the general contractor. Upon receiving full payment from the owner, the general contractor has seven days to pay those subcontractors that were included in the invoice submitted to the owner for the services specified in the general contractor's invoice to the owner. Or, if the general contractor only receives partial payment from the owner, the general contractor has to pay its subcontractors that were involved in the submitted invoice for that payment on a rateable basis. 
where the money withheld by the owner related to the work of a specified subcontractor, the money paid will be distributed among the other subcontractors rateably. Now, there are scenarios where the Act will allow for a proper invoice to be revised by the contractor after, after it has actually been submitted uh, to the owner. And there's three things that might have to happen for that to, uh, to be allowed. The owner has to agree in advance to the revision. The date of the proper invoice cannot be changed. And the proper invoice continues to meet the requir requirements referred to in the definition of a proper invoice that is provided by the Act. One of the most important elements of this prompt payment legislation is that the owner, the general contractor, or another payer is allowed to set off against any invoices by submitting a notice of intention to withhold payment within seven days of receipt of a proper invoice. The owner must specify the amount that is not being paid and detail the reasons for non-payment. Now, while that was a very high-level summary of the uh, prompt payment regime, um, there is lots of other uh, literature out there on this. Everybody's been talking about it for the last few months and we'll continue to talk about it, but I'd like to get into more about um, how this is actually going to affect the industry. And as I mentioned off the top, we have uh, Josh Strub from PR Railworks here today. Josh, how are you doing? I'm good. Thank you, Charlie. Uh, so, Josh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your role with PR and, and what your day to day sees you doing? Sure. So, first of all, thanks for having me here on, on the podcast. Thanks to the Glay whole team. So, I've been working at PR Railworks for a couple of years and just a little bit about the company. We're a full service rail contractor. So we install and maintain track and transit systems. So that includes the rail systems themselves, as well as the signaling systems and the communication systems associated with the railway. And we work across Canada and the United States. I personally work for PNR Railworks, which is the Canadian entity. And we do work uh, a great deal in the greater Toronto and Hamilton area. So we maintain the entire Go, Go Transit network. We maintain all the track and signals for the Go Transit network. And we also maintain the TransLink network out in Vancouver. And then we do a lot of installation, new construction work for transit systems, as well as for the Class 1 railroads, so the Canadian National and Canadian Pacific railroads of the world. I am the only lawyer for PNR Railworks in Canada, so my role spans all legal issues across the co company and across the country, and so that includes anywhere from labor and employment issues to corporate matters, uh, also to compliance matters, and certainly to pure construction matters where prompt payment certainly falls into. So my day-to-day -day really changes on a daily basis, but certainly a bulk of the work that I do is associated with contract negotiations, contract drafting, as well as dealing with issues on projects such as late or non-payment, which theoretically the prompt payment regime is supposed to help address. Yeah, so I mean, this is this is this is a topic that's right in your wheelhouse right now. You guys are trying to figure out how to how this is going to affect the industry and how to implement it in your contracts. Obviously, is that right? Yeah, that's that's certainly very true and. Um, when I joined the company, which didn't have a lawyer present in Canada, one of the first things that I wanted to address was, what are we signing on to in, in our contracts? And sorry, I didn't mention before, but when it comes to the construction pyramid, our company really works at all ranges of that construction pyramid. So we do a lot of work directly with the owner sitting as a prime contractor or contractor as it's defined in the Construction Act. But then we also do a lot of work as a subcontractor or supplier. So as you might imagine on a, on a P3 project for transit infrastructure in the greater Toronto-Hamilton area with Metrolinx and Infrastructure Ontario, those jobs incorporate a lot of work, not just rail 
installation. And so we often sit as a lower tier subcontractor and given the size of those jobs and the size of the construction pyramids, we might sit as a third or fourth tier subcontractor despite having a contract value that could be 100 or $200 million. So when, when I came aboard, I, I wanted to see what are we signing on to with our general contractors for payment terms. And oftentimes general contractors want pay when paid or pay if paid terms in their contracts, which I think theoretically the prompt payment regime is supposed to protect against. And that's specifically trying to ensure that subcontractors um, receive money as they perform work on the project. But what I've seen and my take of the prompt payment legislation here is that there are a number of gaps in the legislation that don't provide the protection to subcontractors that I think the legislature intended to provide to subcontractors. Yeah, before you get into those, I mean, for you, I guess the prompt payment legislation sitting as a general, it's probably a good thing. You like to see this kind of legislation. But when you're sitting as a subcontractor, there's some concerns you have. And let, let, let's talk about those. What are some of those concerns you have as sitting as a subcontractor in a contract with this new prompt payment legislation? Yeah, so you're right. I mean, certainly as a general contractor, it's great. You're ensuring payment to a general contractor within 28 days. No one's going to complain about that. That's, I think, shorter than payment terms you would see in the best of general contracts that you execute. But as a subcontractor, the goal that I always have negotiating is to have payment terms that have payment to me independent of payment from the owner to the contractor. So when I sign on to a contract, I don't want to accept the risk of issues between the general contractor and the owner. And those could be issues associated with the work or solvency of the owner, whatever the case may be. When I'm negotiating and executing a contract with a general contractor, I wanna make sure that I get paid for the work that my company performs. So what we often see when a general contractor wants a pay when paid provision is we will agree to a modified pay when paid provision, or at least I call it a modified pay when paid provision. And from my experience, I think it's become relatively industry standard for certainly sophisticated subcontractors to get those sorts of terms. And that'll provide that the general contractor is going to pay the subcontractor within seven or 10 days of its receipt of payment from the owner. But if it doesn't receive payment from the owner, then there's some stopgap limit on its payment to the, the subcontractor. So it might say, if it doesn't receive payment from the owner, then payment will be made to the subcontractor within 45 days of the date of invoice, provided that the non-payment from the owner isn't caused by the subcontractor. Right. And that brings up an important point, too, here that I didn't mention in our introduction, but that's that you, you can't contract out of this prompt payment legislation, but you can help yourself or you can help yourself as a subcontractor to add to it, I guess, is what you're trying to say here, right? Yeah, I think so. So, I mean, let, let's start with, the, I think, what my first issue with the legislation is, and that's that the proper invoice is defined as an invoice between a contractor and an owner. And the requirements for the proper invoice you set out earlier, Charlie, but they don't include a requirement to to include in your proper invoice any work or invoices by subcontractors or suppliers in the payment period. So while the obligation of a contractor is to make payment to subcontractors for money received in respect of a proper invoice, if the general contractor doesn't include its subcontractor's applications for payment in its proper invoice to the owner, that obligation to promptly pay never kicks in. And I think that's a, a, a simple issue that 
probably was just overlooked by the drafters of the legislation because when you look at the federal legislation, so for the listeners who are unaware, there's a, a federal act, it's Bill C-97, which should be coming into force very shortly to apply to certain federal projects. And in there, they have a similar but different regime, but they still use the concept of a proper invoice. And in that act, they actually provide that the contractor has an obligation in its proper invoice to include any amounts from a subcontractor or supplier in that payment period. And that is, I think, as a subcontractor, really a critical piece that's missing from the Ontario prompt payment regime. Right, yeah, and I I guess from your perspective, there's ways you can... can you can deal with this in the drafting of your subcontract. So, for instance, uh, I, I presume that PNR is trying to do things to manage this by saying in the subcontract, the general will flow up any applications I make to you. You will carry that in any applications you make to the owners. That's something you're trying to implement in your contracts now because of this? It's certainly something we will impl- try and implement in our contracts once it comes into force. Right now, because it doesn't come into force until October 1, 2019, and for contracts associated with procurement processes starting after October 1, 2019, which is a whole separate discussion of transition issues. Yeah, we're not going to talk about no, those No, we today. won't, of course. <laughs> I think you've talked about those on a prior podcast, Many. perhaps. <laughs> um, so the, the thing that we can do without contravening the uh, requirement that you can't contract out of the act is to exactly what you said. We can specifically require in our contract that the general contractor carries our applications for payment upstream. And then it really will become a question of figuring out all the timing, right? When do I need as a subcontractor to provide my application for payment to the general contractor so that they have enough time to include it in their proper invoice? And that is somewhat of a simple question, but it becomes more complicated as you go farther and farther down the construction pyramid to a fourth or fifth tier supplier where, you know, you you might need their invoice by the fifth day of the month and that isn't practical anymore. So it'll certainly take some clever drafting from lawyers like you guys here at Clay Hotel LP to figure out how we can get around some of these prompt payment issues. But that's, that's certainly the first one, and I think it's, a, as you pointed out, one that can be resolved by proper drafting. Um, so, Josh, you had a very good point about the modified pay when paid that you see often um, in the industry. How will that work uh, once the prompt payment regime is introduced? Right, so that's a good question. I, th- I think we mentioned that the Act is mandatory, and so anything that's in the act is then read in or written into a contract regardless of what you put in in your contract. So if your contract or subcontract contravenes the the prompt payment legislation, then it's of no force and the prompt payment legislation will uh, take precedence. So if the modified pay when paid has anything in it that is contrary to the prompt payment legislation, it won't really be applicable. So I might say in my contract, that the general contractor has to pay me within 45 days, but the general contractor will then turn to the prompt payment legislation and say, well, I received a notice of non-payment from the owner. I'm just going to issue my notice of non-payment down to the subcontractor and the Construction Act gives me the right to not pay you. And so while I thought I had this great contract that gave me the right to be paid regardless of what happened from the owner, I now have my client, the general contractor, relying on Ontario legislation to say, you know, it's all great what we have in the contract, but you can't contract out of this legislation, and so now I, I don't have to pay you because I wasn't paid by the owner. 
So, Josh, one of the other things that's interesting about this prompt payment legislation is that that you know it doesn't it doesn't single out the types of contracts that are in the construction industry. So, you know, you have different contracts like a, a unit rate contract or a cost reimbursable or a lump sum or a milestone payment contract, for instance, that that spells out how a contractor or a subcontractor is going to be paid, when the timing of that payment will happen, uh, and, and those types of things. And I, I expect that you know. From your point of view, whether you're acting as a contractor or a subcontractor under this, this is something you've got your eye on because it's going to affect how you're going to get paid and when you're going to get paid. Yeah, so that's certainly one of the issues that I that I see in the act here, and it's not necessarily an issue of what the uh, mechanism for payment or type of contract is between the owner and the contractor. Where the problem arises is if that mechanism for payment is different as between the owner and the contractor, and then the contractor and its subcontractors or suppliers. So if you take, for example, a unit price contract, and I'll just refer to my industry in, in rail, and it's a relatively simple one to think about, we might get paid on a unit rate basis for each foot of rail that we install. So let's just give an example. You get paid $1,000 for every foot you install. So in the month of May, you installed 60,000 feet, so you invoice 60,000 feet times $1,000 a foot. But we then go and buy our materials from suppliers, and we purchase those materials in advance of installing them, right? And we buy them by the material. So a, a railway cross tie, for example, will we'll buy by each tie, and that doesn't necessarily correlate to the installation of the tie. So the prompt payment regime will apply to my supply agreement with the tie supplier, Yet I am invoicing based on installation to the owner and the tie supplier wants to invoice and get paid based on their delivery. So the tie supplier might deliver all the ties to me in month one on the job, but it takes me 10 months to install all of those ties and I only get paid for the foot feet of rail that I install in each month. And now the supplier is going to look to me and say, well, I don't want to accept this prompt payment legislation because I want to get paid when I deliver my material. I don't want to get paid based on your payment mechanism and your upstream contract. In fact, as a supplier, I don't even care what your upstream payment mechanism is. And in many cases, general contractors don't even share that information with their subcontractors or suppliers. And so I think that there's, there's really a, a potential disconnect between those different payment mechanisms. I think you also mentioned milestone payments, and I think that's another good example. And I think milestone payment contracts are becoming more and more prevalent, certainly in the province of Ontario, where you get paid for certain achievement of a milestone. So let's say uh, you're building a building, you might get paid when you finish the foundation. That's a big lump sum payment. But the forming contractor and the excavating contractor, the footings, the rebar, all of these people are expect and get paid based on progress. But the proper invoice is only going to be submitted based on the payment mechanisms in the upstream contract. And so the obligation of prompt payment only arises at the achievement and payment for that milestone. So not only do you have this disconnect in timing, which will often be very difficult for subcontractors and suppliers, but if there is a notice of non-payment from the owner, you'll never be able to identify how that non-payment applies to subcontractors and suppliers because the owner's not thinking about the divisions that a general contractor has created. The owner's just thinking about, have you achieved my milestone or not? Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, especially for those milestone-type contracts, as you mentioned, the milestone is, let's say it's footings. You get all your footings in or, or your, your concrete um, 
foundations in and uh, the owner will look to see if that's in and if you've met that milestone he's going to pay but there will not be any idea on who the person holding up any any progress in that sense will be you know did the contractor or the rebar supplier hold that up for the general and not figure out how you're not going to pay that that sub that subcontractor up the line uh, that's going to be a difficult thing to figure out exactly yeah and that actually I think leads into nicely the the third problem I see because this third problem, I think, is is actually really exacerbated by the second problem of not having the same types of payment between prime contracts and subcontracts. But the third problem is the issue of paying on a rateable basis. And I think that the impact that we're often going to see is that subcontractors won't get paid monies owed to them due to no fault of their own. So subcontractors will be in situations where they did everything right, they supplied, they installed their services per their contract in accordance with the schedule, but something else has happened either between the general contractor and the owner or involving other subcontractors, which has resulted in a notice of non-payment. And as you pointed out, unless the owner specifically identifies which subcontractors work caused the problem, all subcontractors get paid on a rateable basis. And so what we will likely see is an owner not really caring what the cause of which subcontractor caused the problem. They just care that, that there was a problem. And so they'll issue their notice of non-payment and subcontractors won't receive their payment, which goes completely against the terms that I try and negotiate in this modified pay when paid clause that we were talking about before. And you might take an example um, to an extreme of liquidated damages so let's say you have a, an owner that hires a general contractor to build a small office building, and there's a liquidated damages provision of $10,000 a day based on occupancy. The, you get to the end of the job, and the general contractor has delayed completion. And in fact, the general contractor agrees that it has delayed completion. And so the owner issues a notice of non-payment, setting off the liquidated damages. Yet one of the subcontractors on the project is a landscaper. And a landscaper has nothing to do with achieving occupancy of the building. But now there's this notice of non-payment, which doesn't apply to any particular subcontractor. And this landscaper who did nothing wrong, who had absolutely nothing to do with achievement of occupancy or non-achievement of occupancy, has no right to payment under the prompt payment legislation because all the subcontractors are going to get paid rateably out of a $0 payment. Right, yeah, that, that's that's a concern that everybody's got right now and how that's going to be managed appropriately. And I, I don't know that there's a good answer to that. I mean, your, your point's right. These these follow-up subcontractors that come in after a building gets occupancy, landscaper's a great example, uh, are the ones that could be on the hook for, you know, a lot of money while disputes get resolved. Right. Um, that's going to be a difficult thing to, to manage, I think. Okay, Josh, the, you raised a very good point about um, the discrepancy between payment, uh, between you, for example, uh, installing rails and getting paid per foot. Um, and the supplier who sells you ties. Just tell us, uh, is that different than what the current situation is as opposed to when prompt payment comes into effect? Yeah, I think that's a, a good point because the legislation doesn't tell a contractor not to pay until it receives money. It just, ha it just is obligated to pay when it receives the money, assuming, of course, that it carried those 
costs into its proper invoice. And so in the case of a supplier, it probably won't make such a big difference because suppliers are going to insist on cash on delivery or 45-day payment terms from the delivery of their materials. So I think it's a bigger concern with respect to subcontractors. So thanks for bringing it up and, and clarifying the point. So I'll just go back to the same example and, and give one an example with a subcontractor because I gave the example with the supplier. And to your point, Lena, perhaps it's, it's not a real practical concern. But let's talk about a, a subcontractor. So when we install rail, back to the same example, the rail strings are 80 feet long and they need to be welded together at the ends of each piece of rail. And so our welding subcontractor might want to charge us per weld and they weld all that rail before we actually install the entire rail system, right? And so they are a, a true subcontractor whose costs are going to be carried forward or hopefully carried forward into our invoice to the owner, but they're going to have performed a whole bunch of welds before we actually installed the rail, and so we won't get paid for their welds until we get paid for the installation per foot or per meter of rail at the end of the month. And so that's where we might see a real disconnect where the supplier is telling us, well, I want to get paid per weld. And we say, okay, you're going to get paid per weld. But then we still rely on the prompt payment legislation and say, well, you know, we carried your costs into the, into the invoice of the owner. And yeah, you've welded, you know, a lot more than we've installed, but we only got paid for what we installed. And we're only obligated to pay you your pro rata share of the uh, payment from the owner. So one way to address that might be specifying a, like a payment uh, schedule, I guess, because the access, unless you specify in your contract how often you're submitting proper invoices, it's monthly. So I guess one way to address it might be specifying a timeline that works. Yeah, I think that's right. And in an ideal world, you'll be thinking about that at the time that you're negotiating and executing a contract with the owner. But I think what we often see, certainly on public procurement projects, is that you don't really have much of a negotiation with the owner on its contract terms. They're set out in the RFP, and then you you win and execute that contract, and then you later are trying to go and bring on your subcontractors, right? And so I think we might see a little bit of a problem in those subsequent negotiations with subcontractors who want to avoid the perhaps negative impacts of the prompt payment legislation in their subcontract terms. And earlier we were talking about, you know, how can we negotiate and, and craft subcontract terms to get around this? And, and this, I guess, is where it comes back to clever lawyering. We have to figure out what can we do, what can we draft into our subcontracts that complements the prompt payment legislation and avoids these problems without contravening the prompt payment legislation. So, Josh, you know, we talked off the start um, about how, you know, PNR is is how this is affecting you guys and how you're you're getting ready for it to be implemented. And we talked, you know, we've talked throughout this podcast about, you've said it a few times, you know, everybody's looking at the lawyers to draft up these contracts and, and how they're going to change the terms of payment. But to be honest, uh, you know, this is going to affect a lot more than lawyers for corporations. Like corporations are going to have to change their whole payment schemes. Uh, so it's going to attach to things like accounting and, and project teams and things like that. And they're going to have to have new discussions between them. But so from PNR's perspective, you know, how wide is this actually hitting your, your, your companies? And what are you doing to, to teach those people about what this means? Right. So really good question, because as you said, we've been talking about some of the interpretation of the legislation and how can we draft contracts to work within it and and address some of the gaps that that I see and others see in the legislation but the real concern and real question is how are we practically going to implement prompt payment 
Um, and when you're talking about large construction companies, and I've certainly spoken with some colleagues in-house at other much larger construction companies in Canada, and everyone's very concerned about the same problem. And that's how do we get our accounting teams and specifically our accounts payable and accounts receivable teams ready for this. And what we see in our organization, which I think is consistent with most organizations, is accounts payable and accounts receivable often are two separate groups, certainly within the finance group together, but two separate groups. And they often aren't necessarily segregated by jurisdiction. So there isn't an accounts payable and accounts receivable group for projects in Ontario. There's an accounts payable and accounts receivable group for all of Canada, or perhaps for the entire West Coast and the entire East Coast. There's a amalgamation of jurisdictions within organizations because you know, you're, you're looking for economies of scale and you want to send as much work to as few people as possible. So the, the first concern is going to be making sure we can properly identify which contracts do and do not fall within the prompt payment regime. And certainly for the transition period, that's going to be a complicated problem, which is going to involve lawyers dealing on a contract by contract basis. Does this one fall in and does this one not fall in? So there's certainly going to be a lot more um, communication and connection between my department, which in my company is just me, and the accounts payable and accounts receivables group so that we can make sure everyone's on the same page about whether the regime applies in any given case. That's an issue, though, that's going to sort itself out with time. I mean, eventually all your projects are going to have it applied to, but I get your point. Off the start, it's which ones do because of these transition provisions. Yeah, exactly. So uh, over time, it'll just be, is the project in Ontario or not? Um, and then actually, as we're seeing across the country, more and more provinces, and as I mentioned before, the federal government are coming out with prompt payment legislation as well. So Quebec, there's a pro pilot project right now. In BC, uh, there was actually a member's bill uh, tabled last week for prompt payment there. I don't, I don't know if it'll go through so quickly, but it is happening. Everyone is sort of moving in this direction, and there'll be differences between the prompt payment regime in each, in each jurisdiction. But let's say everyone understands which contracts apply and which ones don't. We still then need to make sure that there is a uh, very close communication between the project team, the accounts receivable team, and the accounts payable team so that... Everyone knows when an invoice has gone into a general contractor. Everyone knows when a proper invoice has been submitted. Everyone knows what a proper invoice actually is on any given job, right? We can't just use our standard form invoices anymore. We need to make sure that we comply with the act for proper invoices and make sure that the contract terms are very clear and that we understand what those contract terms are. But I think most importantly, we need to make sure that we can comply with the tight timeframes. And that's both in understanding, did we receive a notice of non-payment? Because that notice is going to go to the project team. It's not going to go to the accounts receivable team. And the project team is going to have to turn around to the accounts receivable and the accounts payable teams very quickly and say, do we have subcontractors that we need to send out notices of non-payment to? And hey, accounts receivable team, you're not getting this check, right? Be aware you're not getting this check. Um, and so I think that's going to take a little bit of work. And then certainly the ability to turn around payments in seven days because contractors to subcontractors and subcontractors down to all the way down the pyramid have seven days to turn around payment. And so we need to make sure that the accounts payable team gets that some kind of a ping, hey, we received money, you have seven days, and we're making sure that money can go out seven days later. And I think if you talk to accounting groups and most contractors, seven days is very short. 30 days is often too short to turn payment around. So it's going to be a challenge. 
Um, I've certainly been raising the flag with our finance group, as I know a lot of my colleagues are with their organizations. And the accounting group has its processes and, you know, are reluctant to change them. So it's going to take some time. We don't have a lot of time left, unfortunately, but it's going to take some time to train and figure out how can we change our our systems because everything's run through various software systems. How can we change our software systems to get us ready for uh, prompt payment and to make sure we can comply? The last thing we want is to be in adjudications just because we turn payment around on day 21 instead of on day seven. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the systems thing is the big thing because as we all know, you know, a lot of this stuff is now done through systems. It's it's highlighting, you know, red flags in the accounting system of when payments are overdue and that gets you a ping, as you call it, a notice, I would call it. Right. As a, it pops up and it tells you you're out of date for payment, but those systems now have to be shifted to these new payment timelines and, and teaching people, uh, you know, that have worked in this industry for a long time that you now have to pay within seven days is going to be something that's a little bit uh, frustrating, I'm sure, for them to say, how am I supposed to get all this done within seven days after I get a payment? Right. So, I mean, maybe one recommendation is to get people to listen to this podcast. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, what, what I'm doing, as I said, I've reached out to the accounting group and I, I'm putting together a training package, which I will use for a separate one for the project teams and, and one for the accounting group where I, will, where I will walk through how it's supposed to work and then we'll brainstorm together how we can uh, modify our procedures and our systems in order to comply with the new regime. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be interesting to see how this all plays out. I mean, we've, we've talked about this a lot before with all the changes coming with the Construction Act. It's going to be, you know, we're all, we're all getting ready for them. We haven't seen how they're going to play out. We've seen how they played out in other jurisdictions. But obviously, everybody's got a close eye on how this is all going to work. And we still do have some time, obviously, before prompt payment comes into existence. But it's going to be here before we know it on October 1. And people are really trying to have to get ready for it. But um, I think we, we, we've touched on a lot of the points uh, that a lot of people are talking about uh, with this prompt payment legislation and uh, i'd just like to thank you josh for coming in and speaking with us today um and lena as well for for joining the podcast and thank you everybody for listening thank you thanks for having me thanks josh thank you for listening please subscribe on apple Podcasts, spotify google play or wherever you get your podcasts and visit glayholt.com for more information if you have any questions email us at info at we look forward to having you join us again